What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Called to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're a little unsure of what exactly the Church teaches on, you know, A, B, or C, we can uh, clue you in on that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, if you have a question or two about the Catholic faith. What does it actually teach? 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. or Canada, please dial the number 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery, our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box and we'll hopefully get to it uh, on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Interesting question here from Daniel. This is one of those objections that we hear from time to time. Daniel says, in short, the Bible does not teach the veneration of human beings, that is, saints or angels. In fact, it teaches the opposite, especially whenever someone bows down at the feet of a mere servant of God, and it directly teaches against the veneration of pagan images. See Baal. And that's from Daniel. Um, yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate the question. So, well, it's not really a question. It was more of an assertion, yeah. wasn't it? Uh, yeah. um, so <clears throat> in, in the book of Romans, chapter 13, Paul says, Render to everyone what is his due, taxes if you owe them taxes, honor if you owe them honor. Mm. And so the idea of honoring people for their office or position is a biblical idea. In fact, it's, it's, it's part of the, the natural order of justice. I mean, we would be... We would think it absurd, uh, for example, if um, you know if the president of the United States walked into your child's kindergarten class, <laughs> uh, if uh, if you thought the appropriate thing to do was to you know hand him the crayons and a cookie and a <laughs> and a cup of juice and say, now take your place on the mat, boys and girls. Hey, right? he's the president. He gets two cookies. <laughs> he gets two That's cookies, right. right. Exactly. No, you, you have an entirely different response. Of course. Because of his office, because of the dignity of his office. And in the same way that we uh, say, uh, you know, recognize a valedictorian graduating from the high school or, or even more so, we would put up a monument to... Uh, uh, fallen war hero or a civil rights icon or something yes. like that. Yes. These kinds of recognitions of of, of uh, gifts to the common good, to the civilization, are right and, and in fact just and the right thing. And St. Paul exhibited this in his own behavior. Think about uh, Acts chapter 23 when, when uh, St. Paul spoke back to the high priest of, uh, of the Jews in, in Jerusalem and he is rebuked by those around him who say, do you dare to talk to God's high priest this way? And he says, whoops, so sorry, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. I wouldn't have talked to him that way. So the idea of, we don't want to be respecters of persons in the sense that we favor the rich over the poor or, you know, our cronies over our enemies, 
But in the sense that we recognize that certain people do have office or dignity that needs to be acknowledged, and that it, that's part of the nature of justice, well, that, that's built into the morality of sacred Scripture. Now, so I would really beg to differ that Scripture tells us we're not to venerate human beings or angels. Uh, but, you know, my experience with this kind of objection is generally it's not veneration that people object to. They don't object to the idea of saying your honor when you go in the courtroom or, you know, yes, officer, when you get pulled over on the side of the street. In fact, that was just good sense to behave that way. Yeah. What they really object to is the Catholic practice of asking the saints for their prayers, uh, praying to the saints, in other words. And because to a lot of Protestants, a lot of non-Catholics, they think that that means worship. That when a Catholic person asks a saint for his his or her prayers or intercession, that that means we're worshiping them. Well, I, I hate to say it, you don't know what the word worship means, right? Because the the central act of worship is to offer sacrifice. Saint Paul again, Romans chapter twelve, he says, "Offer your bodies in living sacrifices." This is your act of worship. This is what worship consists in, namely, to make an offering, to make a sacrifice. And one thing you'll notice about the Catholic relationship to saints is we don't offer them sacrifices. We do not offer them sacrifices. Right. We, we do offer sacrifice in the Catholic Church. We offer sacrifice to God, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of his son, Jesus. That's what the Mass is. It's the offering of Christ to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world. And I would encourage you to attend to the words of the Mass, to actually study what the Mass says. This is the, the highest form of Catholic worship, and it consists of offering sacrifice to Almighty God with the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ and not to the saints. And in fact, the saints come into the Mass as co-worshippers with us. They're, they're other members of the body of Christ to make this offering uh, to God. We're not, we're not offering it to them. So if you understand the nature of worship, then you recognize that Catholics absolutely don't worship the saints or angels, although we do ask them for their prayers and intercessions. Now, our asking them to pray for us is no different from our asking one another to pray for us, asking my friend, asking Tom Price here to pray for me or my buddy. Now, there are people whose prayers I covet more than others. You know, I mean, I'd rather have Mother Teresa pray for me than, like, the Unabomber. <laughs> you <laughs> yes. Know? And Scripture, again, St. James tells us in his epistle that the prayers of a righteous person avail much. They're more effective. And so it's right and just, again, to think that some people can pray more efficaciously. And by definition, the saints have made it. They've succeeded. They're in heaven. They're in glory. They're, they're holier than we are. So we should covet their prayers to a particular extent and combine that with a recognition that their holiness and accomplishments are rightly venerated in the order of justice. And voila, you have uh, Catholic, Catholic devotional practice. Very good. Daniel, thanks so much for your email. Here's a quick one. Uh, this is an anonymous emailer. I would love to hear your thoughts regarding high school curriculum and how best to engage high school students with the faith. Yeah, thanks. So <clears throat> I absolutely don't claim any expertise uh, as an educator, particularly of high school students. Um, you know, I, I have my own high school students. I have my own children. And with my own family, i I think the best thing that I've done is to encourage my kids to read widely and to read with them. Mm. Uh, I've exposed them to Christian literature, but other kinds of literature as well, and classical literature, to really develop their minds and their sense of history and their appreciation for culture and the, also the church and the Catholic thinkers. 
uh, but to try to make it uh, fun and engaging and uh, something that we share and not something that is like an imposition. Here, Dad's going to make you do this. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, especially those of you watching on TV today, our address ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a moment with lots more Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN, and uh, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Those lines are open right now. Hey, here's an email from Cody who says, I am a lapsed Catholic interested in coming back to the church. While away from the Catholic Church, I accepted an administrative support position at a Presbyterian church. Now, I do not attend this church, but simply fulfill an administrative or business function. Is it sinful, well, first of all, is it sinful for me as a Catholic to work at this Presbyterian church, and as part of my repentance and reconciliation process, do I need to find alternative employment? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, truth be told, I know a lot of Catholics that work in Protestant institutions. I know them teaching in Protestant colleges, uh, administering Protestant agencies. I mean, it's not uncommon. You know, the question here would be how how closely allied your work is with the mission of the church, and is there anything about that mission that a Catholic could not concede to? So I, I know Protestant—did you say Presbyterian? Yes. I know Presbyterian churches that— target Catholics for conversion, for example, for proselytism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to head up the, you know, let's go nail a Catholic group. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. You know, I mean, there there, there are limits. Uh, But if it's a matter of keeping their books, you know, I think that you're— that's sufficiently remote from the the otherwise perhaps objectionable uh, elements of the mission that I, I wouldn't have a qualm about that. But, okay. I, but that's you really have to know what you're doing. I can't make that judgment for you because I don't know, like I said, how closely allied your position is with sure. w- what may or may not be objectionable there. But it's not in principle wrong to work for a Protestant agency. I mean, if that were the case, I mean, Catholics would be pretty much out of jobs all over the planet, right? Yeah. Because we, we can't all work for Catholic institutions. And if you work in corporate America, I mean, you're almost, it, it's almost a foregone conclusion that you're going to be involved uh, materially in mm-hmm. organizations that may very well have an anti-Catholic slant to a lot that they do. And it's just, you can't cut yourself off entirely from the economy of the civilization and get by. Now, uh, you asked if you should leave that job and take another one. I, I wouldn't advise you to do that now, but I will tell you um, that there is a growing need for lay administers of Catholic parishes, uh, particularly large parishes that mm-hmm. you know have that, need that kind of staff support. And p- priests are not typically trained in administration; they learn theology and preaching, homiletics, and so forth. But uh, many of them need help, and I I know lay people that work as administrators of Catholic parishes, and so you know you might look into that market. It, Typically, it doesn't pay as well as the Protestant market, but it's something to consider. <laughs> there you go. And uh, Cody, thank you so much for your email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Laura in Lafayette, Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King radio. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you all so much for taking my call. Um, I am a Catholic composer and musician down here in Louisiana. God has been so good. Um, to give me the mission of sharing the gospel through song. 
I'm going to be doing a few uh, concerts at local church parishes here in our diocese, and I would just like to maybe get, like, what does the church teach on on how to keep events as such um, to be, you know, in line with the guidelines of canon law and to keep the sanctity of the altar and all those things. If y'all could maybe just guide me, I would appreciate that so much. Yeah, thanks. So it's, it is acceptable, of course, to have events in the church sanctuary, and there are things that we can do. Sometimes churches will remove the Blessed Sacrament from the tabernacle, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so that you're not yakking about stuff in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, and obviously, you know, you, you, you don't want to approach the altar in an irreverent way and that sort of thing. <laughs> Tom may have a few, few things to consider, because, to add, because his wife, Adrienne, does this quite frequently and has over the years sung in sanctuaries, even not during the liturgy. Yeah, Tom, yeah. What, what are your thoughts? Well, she certainly has, and and uh, your idea, or your, your suggestion of, you know, removing the Blessed Sacrament, mm-hmm. placing that in repose, perhaps, you know, in the sacristy or someplace else appropriate. Uh, but the main thing is to is to keep it keep it reverent. That's right. And I, I've spoken in a lot of Catholic parishes, and sometimes the sanctuary is the only place they can house you. You know, yeah. and I've had to speak in the sanctuary. So. Absolutely. Laura, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to this question from Dominic, an emailer, who says, I attended a mass where they baptized a young person. The priest said some prayers for the family and the godparents and then made the sign of the cross on the individual's forehead. Was this individual baptized? Yeah, well, baptism requires the administration of water, the pouring of water over the scalp, mm-hmm. and the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if if the priest did those things, uh, the young person is validly baptized. If the priest did not do those things, the young person is not validly baptized. Now, uh, there are a lot of ancillary elements to the rite of baptism, mm-hmm. And so the thing can go on for a while, and it's uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, you know if you're not familiar with the Catholic baptism, if your attention flags, and you might actually like miss the key thing. Right? Yeah, so I would yeah. be I would be really shocked in any Catholic parish that purported to to perform the sacrament of baptism if they left out the main thing. Uh, that yes. would that would really surprise me. Okay. And uh, Dominic, thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's uh, a call now from Jack in Dallas. Let's go to him uh, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio AM 910. Jack, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I want to share something with you. I mean, uh, all these Protestant churches, all they have is preaching. That's it. Uh, In the very beginning, Jesus spoke about this, and they said anyone teaching a different doctrine other than the one we gave you is a curse. Well, the main thing is, they threw out the, the body and blood of Christ, the Eucharist. They've got nothing but preaching. It's really simple. The Catholic Church has the body and blood of Christ, the Eucharist. They don't have anything but preaching. That's all they've got. They don't have the sacrifice of the Mass, and it's right in their face, and I don't see how they can miss this. They've got nothing. They've- yeah, thanks, Jack. I appreciate your point of view, although I don't share it, and the Church doesn't share it. So first of all, what what elements of the Catholic faith, what elements of truth and sanctification do Protestants possess? Well, they have the Word of God, which you failed to mention, at least most of it. 
uh, they have the valid, in most cases, the valid administration of the sacrament of baptism. And that is a big kahuna right there. Yeah. Baptism makes you a member of Christ. It makes you a member of the Catholic Church. It makes you a priest in Christ's church. It, it configures you to Christ. It, it infuses sanctifying grace into your soul and washes original sin away from you. Protestants have valid baptisms. Most of them do. Um, they, uh, they often have valid sacramental marriages. Uh, that's a real sacrament of the Catholic Church that a Protestant can share without being Catholic, even mm-hmm. though they don't they don't know that they have the sacrament of, of marriage, right? <laughs> they don't typically believe that marriage is a sacrament, but they're not knowing it doesn't prevent them from receiving yeah. it. And so that's real grace. Um, uh, of course, they have uh, many of them, not all of them, many of them have access to the great patrimony of the fathers. Uh, uh, many of the Protestants that I studied with before becoming Catholic uh, were students of the Church Fathers and, and of Catholic devotional literature. I mean, I first read The Imitation of Christ uh, by Thomas Kempis when I was a card-carrying evangelical at Wheaton College. Wow. You know, and I, I sort of nourished myself on Catholic thought years, decades before I became Catholic, even when I had no intention of becoming Catholic. I, I appreciated the holiness of the saints and St. Saint Francis and, of course, Mother Teresa uh, and others that I was becoming aware of, and, and that was a source of, uh, of, of, of growth in me, right? And so the Church's position is that through these elements of truth and sanctification, the Protestant can come to holiness and to salvation, but he faces a kind of an uphill battle. We all face an uphill battle, but he faces an uphill battle that's maybe harder in some respects because of some of the things that you mentioned. So there are there are problems with Protestant doctrine that can be a real impediment to a person's growth and holiness. So take, for example, the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, if, uh, if someone were to hold that doctrine in a particularly... Um, uh, antinomian mode, and what I mean by that is a mode that says, hey, I don't have to do any good works, I don't have to grow in holiness, and not all Protestants do that, I should add. But if a person were to take it in a particularly antinomian mode, that doctrine might uh, impede them from actually seeking to grow in holiness. Mm. And so that would be an objective impediment to their growing in holiness. That being said, I have known nominally antinomian Protestants, those that would go to the mat to defend the idea that you don't have to grow in holiness, who were in fact very holy, like whose lived experience of the Christian faith was one of virtue and self-sacrifice and charity. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's based on that that we will be judged. And so I'd, I'd rather a person hold the entirety of the Catholic faith and live a life in imitation of the saints. But if you have to pick it's better to live in imitation of the saints than to hold the truth and not live by it. Right? That's St. Peter says that in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, mm-hmm. better not to have entered the way of righteousness, mm-hmm. i.e. become a Catholic and have all the sacraments, if you're not going to actually live the holiness of the Church. And those who can come to holiness through those elements of truth and sanctification, because their ignorance of the rest of the Catholic faith is not their fault, uh, are in a better position than Catholics who know the truth, and yet don't live up to the gospel of grace. Jack, thank you so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Shane is in Pike, Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Shane, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Um, My question is, why did they change the ruling on whether a bishop can be a woman, and then can they be married? Um, 
Yep. So I, I assume we're not talking about Catholic bishops here. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because within the Catholic Church, a, a, a woman cannot become a priest, and a fortiori, she cannot become a bishop, right? So that, that's, that's a done deal for Catholicism. So there are other Protestant groups that claim to have the office of priesthood or the episcopacy who will place women in those positions. Now, from the Catholic point of view, virtually none of those groups have, have valid apostolic orders, and so they don't have even valid priests, let alone valid bishops. And so, you know, from as the Catholic would see it, they don't actually have women bishops, even though they say they do, not because of anything against women, but because they don't have bishops. They don't yeah. have priests. They yeah. just have a bunch of lay people that, uh, you know, assume the name, but not the reality of the thing. Sure. Um, uh, the call screener said you might have a particular interest in the Lutheran tradition. Um, you know, Lutherans are not all cut out of the same cloth. They're different mm -hmm. Lutheran denominations. Some are more traditional. Some are more modernist or liberal. Um, Evangelical Lutheran <clears throat> Church in America, ELCA, for example, tends to be more liberal. I think they have more of the female clergy as opposed to the Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod. And um, and I think within within that, I don't want to generalize too much because I'm not an expert on the ELCA, but a lot of more mainline Protestant denominations have basically taken the attitude that they're going to update the faith as they would understand it uh, to bring it more in line with the spirit of the age. So that's kind of the essential component of modernism, right, is I'm just going to mm -hmm. change the faith to accommodate what the culture asks for. Um, and uh, and so that that may be how they justify it. I, you know, I, I can't say I'm not Lutheran. Okay. Hey, Shane, hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Minnesota. Let's go now to uh, Seattle and talk with Nancy watching us on YouTube today. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Dr. Anders and Tom Price. Um, I listen practically every day. And um, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because last night I watched 60 Minutes, and it was uh, Session 55, Episode 44, The Revolution, The Future of Artificial Intelligence. And, you know, I couldn't wait to get on the phone this morning and call you, Dr. Anders, and ask you, uh, for your view uh, of artificial intelligence and uh, as far as uh, how Catholics can best uh, get their heads wrapped around and get their lives ordered in such a manner to prepare for the speed of such a thing as this. And um, the, the overtime uh, part of the 60-minute shows was also very interesting, but quite disturbing. I mean, I really have to say, and uh, the points that were brought up uh, were, um, uh, I mean, it truly, um, the guy that the interviewer said, I'm normally not speechless, but I am speechless, and I would have to just wrap my uh, head around the fact that I am uh, speechless as well. But um, I just okay. really... Yeah, and, and yeah, what, what about AI? So, so I, let, me, let me caveat at the beginning here. I, what I know about computer science, you know, you could fit in this coffee cup, right? <laughs> I, I think when I was a junior high... Uh, my family acquired an Apple II Plus, if you can Ooh. remember that laptop, I mean, yeah. that, that desktop computer. And my father signed me up for a programming class, and I think I learned enough of basic that, you know, I could I could make a ball bounce back and forth across the screen. And nice. That was when I was 13, and I have since <laughs> forgotten how to make balls bounce back and forth across <laughs> screens, and I couldn't basic my way out of a paper bag today. So mm. I, I, this is really not my area of expertise. There are people at the network who work in our computer department who are all over this kind of stuff all day long. That ain't me. Okay. 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 Um, so my very uh, layman's perspective on this, of course, AI is a tool that has the potential to be 
really economically and culturally transformative and it's extremely powerful and I'm sure it can be cut, put to a good use for by in some instances there are some significant dangers one of the biggest ones is a danger to intellectual property rights and uh, so people in the artistic and creative industries are of course terrified of this thing because AI is writing novels and composing music and painting pictures and it does it oftentimes by culling from their work and rearranging it in a, mm -hmm. in a you know new creative way, and so it's a, a lot of controversy in those fields about the extent to which AI should be permitted because it really is destroying the livelihood of a lot of people. A great potential for disinformation. Also, AI can pretend to be you and go do things in your name or spread falsehoods. So these are these are tremendous cultural challenges. There you go. And Nancy, thank you so much for your call. In a moment, we'll talk with Antonio in Duluth. We have a couple lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have one line open right now at 833 833- 288-3986. Right now, though, let's go to Antonio, a first-time caller from Duluth, and Antonio's listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hi, Antonio. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I just had a question, I guess, when um, debating um, other Christians um, on certain aspects of our faith. Um, and one of the biggest things that comes up is the Eucharist, obviously. Um, and the reverend, uh, the reference I always go to is John six fifty three, um, But I always get pushback. Well, he says a lot of that, uh, amen, amen, I say to you. And another one that they talk about, or not necessarily saying amen, I say to you, but when Jesus speaks about um, if you are, you know, to commit adultery, to, or if it's your right hand causing you to sin, to cut it off, necessarily. And they always say, well, is that literally what Jesus meant in that? And if it is, you know, that's, they're like, that's crazy. But then they also say, well, he, he's just being metaphorical in John 6.53. And I guess is what is a good way of approaching that? And I mean, because to me, it's, the context of it makes complete sense of what he's saying. And he reiterates it three times of, no, I'm saying I am the bread of life. Mm -hmm. And if you eat flesh, it is, you know, the flesh of life. And so I guess just, what's a good way of, of approaching that for um, other um, Christians who aren't Catholic or don't believe in the true presence of the Eucharist? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I have a lot to say about this. So to begin with, um, it's questionable whether you should apply the exact same hermeneutical methods, hermeneutics means the task of interpretation, to the synoptic gospels as you would to John, because it doesn't—a kindergartner can read these texts, well, maybe a grammar school kid could read <laughs> these texts and see at a glance that they're not written in the same style. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar to one another in tone and style and language, and, and John is just very, very different, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And so whatever interpretive approach we, we bring, it's not a one-size—it's not one knife doesn't fit every cupcake here. I mean, they're different texts. And John obviously—I mean, it's patently obvious—speaks in a far more figurative— uh, symbolical, suggestive way. Mm -hmm. by, by that, I don't mean that he's not describing realities. I mean that he 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 he's use he uses narratives to create these perennially spiritually powerful scenes that that affect us in a way that uh, comparable scenes in the synoptics don't quite muster. Uh, take for example um, what John four, the Samaritan woman at the well. 
uh, basically all ancient interpreters saw this, this story as a kind of allegory for the conversion of the entire Gentile church. It's evident, I think, that this woman stands for uh, the non-Jewish believer in Jesus, the one who comes to Christ. First you have mm -hmm. the Samaritans and then you have the Gentiles. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the John chapter 2, the turning of water into wine, uh, which takes place in jars that were previously dedicated to uh, the purification rites of the Jews. And the symbolism seems to be that um, uh, Jesus is converting the rites of the Jews to a more spiritual usage, right? This is the symbolism of the water in Jewish washing jars now becoming this rich wine. It's not about, you know, how to how to how to make a really good vintage and get a hundred on your wine rating. It's it's you know it's a symbolic story, and uh, and the most interesting thing about John's narrative in comparison to the synoptics is that he doesn't explicitly mention the institution of the two major sacraments that are very visible in the other synoptics. No direct mention of baptism, no direct mention of the Eucharist. So what are we to make of that? I mean, that's that's bizarre because these are central things that Christ instituted in the Synoptic Gospels, um, and yet there are these two passages, John chapter three and John chapter six, that really seem like he's talking about those two things. He's talking about water that regenerates and brings life through the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, and he's talking about really eating and drinking the body and blood, flesh, and Jesus uh, of Jesus. And what uh, one Protestant biblical scholar named Joachim Jeremias had to say about that was that at the time of John's gospel, when it was written, the church had already begun to practice something called the Disciplina Arcani. And we find this actually in the synoptics as well, Jesus in Matthew 13, when the disciples come to him and say, why do you teach the people in parables? And Christ said, well, to you I reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them. To them I speak in parables so that they will be seeing but not understanding, hearing but not grasping. Mm. In other words, Christ said, I do this because I don't want to be clearly understood. Now, I'll have to talk about that at another time. Why would Jesus mm. do that? Yeah. To the disciples he gives, to the initiates he gives the full story, to those outside he doesn't give the full story. So we find that in the synoptics, but we seem to see it it seems to be exhibited in the Gospel of John. So Jeremiah thinks that John 3 and John 6, the church had already been practicing the Disciplina Arcani, this practice of concealing the most sublime elements of the faith from unbelievers, uh, but revealing them to the initiates. And the Gospel of John, again, was written in a place where uh, there was persecution of the, of the nascent Christian community, particularly by the synagogue. They'd been cast out of the synagogues. Uh, they had a real sense of their outsider status, and this practice of a discipline of the secret makes a lot of sense. Uh, so if you are in that community where John wrote his gospel, you read John 3 and John 6, it's patently obvious what's being talked about. And of course, it was the sacraments that were concealed from outsiders, right, specifically. And we, we still see remnants of this in the Church today, particularly Catholic churches in the Byzantine Rite. Uh, before the, uh, the the before the Eucharist begins, before the anaphora begins, the deacon cries out, "The doors, the doors!" Which is a reference to excluding people that were not initiates from the celebration of the mysteries. Mm -hmm. and they're still called the mysteries in that tradition. So we okay. see elements of that even in the church today. So uh, to to properly understand the book, to understand the nature of these symbols, the nature of these mysteries, the nature of these things spoken about, alluded to, and yet concealed, you have to have knowledge of what the original community was doing 
and how these texts were received in the tradition. And so the way you read the text is you read it with an eye to the original context, mm -hmm. with an eye to the genre, with an eye to the tradition in which it was written and for which it was written. You don't read the Bible as if it were a, the user's manual on your Toyota Camry, where everything is written exactly at the same level. You can't mm -hmm. bring the same interpretive criteria to bear on John that you would bring on the Gospels. And compellingly to me, the history of commentary on these texts for 2,000 years has always been that they are Eucharistic uh, and baptismal texts. Yeah. That's just the way the Church has always read them. Now, if you if you exclude that from your consideration, well, you know, 2,000 years of Christians must be wrong, because I and my profound wisdom have a different <laughs> way, right? And I insist on treating the entire Bible as if it were a level text written by one person in one style, in one genre, and I don't allow for any of these nuances. Well, then you can just make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can say, yeah. well, I declare that's mm -hmm. not what John means, and, you know, Foo on you, you know, unless you're willing to admit this other evidence. Hope that's helpful for you, Antonio. Thanks so much for your call. Here is Lena now in New York watching on EWTN television today. Hello, Lena. What's on your mind? Well, I've had this on my mind for quite some time. I had one sister who left the Catholic faith, and she keeps telling us how wrong the Catholic Church is, and especially because how we honor Mary. And I keep telling her, well, uh, if you're calling Jesus your brother, how do you accept Jesus as your brother and not take Mary as your mother? And I got to thinking, and I've asked a couple of priests, but they said they didn't know the answer to this. Uh, if Mary, Blessed Mother, carried Jesus in her womb, wouldn't Jesus, who is God, have the same DNA of blood as his mother did? Therefore, Mary is in Jesus. Now, I've been praying about this, because one priest told me to go ask Mary, pray to her and get the answer, and I've been kind of uh, upset inside because I can't find the answer. Well, I think I can help you. I appreciate the question. I think I can help you. So, <coughs> with respect to Mary and, and Jesus and the DNA, yes, of course they share DNA, to be sure, absolutely. Um, but there's something different about Jesus in that Christ is a divine person who has both a divine nature and a human nature, and of course the divine nature is not constituted by DNA. And so the human nature of Christ shares Mary's DNA, but the human nature of Christ is not the totality of Christ. So that's get that right off the bat. Okay. Right? Secondly, I am not my DNA. I'm not my DNA. I mean, my DNA, your DNA, Jesus' DNA, is the biological blueprint that is responsible for the construction of my physiology and my anatomy, um, but, uh, but certainly not my personhood. My personhood is certainly not reducible to my DNA. There's far more to the human person than just mm, their DNA. Sure. So do they share DNA? Of course they share DNA. Uh, but there are many things that the person of we can say of the person of Christ that we cannot say of the person of Mary. Lena, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks for watching us on EWTN Television. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We'll get back to the calls in a moment. I want to tell you about something wonderful now being offered by EWTN's religious catalog. It's an eight-inch statue of St. Benedict. Are you a part of the Benedictine order, or do you wish to have the protective powers of St. Benedict nearby? Well, this statue of St. Benedict is a wonderful devotion to this wonderful saint. It's designed with the saint holding the rule of St. Benedict in his right hand 
and a crozier, in the other hand, depicting his role as abbot. St. Benedict wrote the rule for monks living communally under the authority of an abbot. It's made of a plaster resin mix. Each statue is individually hand-painted by Colombian women who are the sole providers for their families, so certainly a most worthy cause. Check it out right now at EWTNRC.com. That's EWTNRC.com. Just type in their uh, St. Benedict statue. I'm sure that you'll see it in the search engine. Let's go now to uh, Pat in DeSoto, Missouri, also watching us today on EWTN television. Pat, what's on your mind today? Uh, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, was at one time Eucharistic minister, and um, I, I gave the precious blood, but uh, they stopped doing that because of that virus we had going around. Mm-hmm. And also, we could not put our hands in the holy water because there was too much chance of getting that. And so I wanted your uh, outlook on that. What do you think of that and that? You cannot just anybody go up and be a Eucharistic minister. You have to go to classes, and you have to uh, know the the people that they know you're going to class with them. So that's it. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, when you talk about extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, and we prefer that term, extraordinary minister, to Eucharistic minister, because the... The ordinary minister of the Eucharist is, in fact, the priest, mm-hmm. and if he chooses to employ lay people, they are extraordinary. They're not the normal thing. Right. And uh, and you're right. There are there are strict requirements for who can do that, and you have to be instructed to know how to handle the body and blood of Christ, and you have to be a person of a certain character so that you're not going to mishandle the body of Christ or the people of God that are coming forward for communion, and you don't operate with the same authority as the priest. So that's a different sort of office. Uh, in terms of providing the precious blood to the to the laity uh, during the Holy Mass, the Church, of course, permits this, uh, but does not require it, and it's not a necessity for a valid communion or a valid Mass that the lay people commune from the chalice. And so it really is a matter of discretion and prudence, and, um, you know, if you, for some reason, you need to abstain from the chalice, some people, for example, who are alcoholics— uh, are not going to receive from the chalice because the accidents of alcohol, the properties of ac- alcohol, perdure even when the real presence is there. They don't mm. want to have that connection, so they stay away. Um, others have concern for a personal hygiene or health. You know, immunocompromised individuals might abstain, mm. not put their mouth someplace where somebody else's mouth has been. And the same thing would hold for holy water. Um, some people might say, hey, I don't think that's sanitary. You know, don't know, you know, who many, how many ten thousands of hands have been in that holy water. I don't want to stick my hand in there. And of course, you could make that decision. Um, but it's, uh, of course, it's the church is not going to take holy water out of the churches. I mean, that, that's that is a uh, that is a tried and true Catholic uh, sacramental that's been part of uh, liturgical life for literally millennia, and it's an important uh, devotional practice calls our baptism, and by it we participate in uh, the prayers of the Church and are spurred to purification of our moral lives, our interior lives, and the life of holiness, and so we should continue to do that. But if 
somebody you know thinks that they might be compromised, they can find another devotion. But we're not going to take that away from the Catholic faithful at large. Yeah. Uh, Pat, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Susan sent us an email. Susan says, I'm confused about what it means to be a Catholic who receives the sacraments and has a prayer life versus a uh, versus being a Catholic mystic. Is there a greater benefit to being more mystical? Are mystics closer to God than the mere mortal who prays and participates in the sacraments? Great question. It all depends on the meaning of the word mystical. Ah. And as it turns out, the Church has a pretty clear understanding of what mystical means. And believe it or not, it's not what most people think mystical means. Okay. Most people think that mystics are individuals that have really far out there experiences, real wacky stuff. You know, they levitate, they float around, they hear Jesus and Mary talking to them, they see visions, they dream dreams. Uh, they have all kinds of wild stuff going on, and that, that's the typical picture of the mystic. They sort of conflate mystic with visionary. Now, my favorite story about this comes from the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. There is a legend about St. Thomas. I don't know if it's true or not, but it doesn't matter. The point of the story is evident. There's a legend about St. Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, was the Church's greatest theologian and incredibly holy doctor of the Church. Thomas was told uh, in the 13th century when he lived, Thomas, Thomas, there is this nun over here that levitates. I mean, when she prays, she goes into an ecstasy, and she floats five feet off the ground. You've got to come see her. So Thomas was not a skinny man, and so he <laughs> lifted his ponderous bulk and said, all right, I'll come, and he lumbers out the door, and they go, you know, wherever they go, and they enter the convent, and they walk in, and sure enough, there's the nun five feet off the ground. Thomas looks at her, and he says, she has big feet. <laughs> Whereupon the nun comes out of her trance, and is indignant that he would mention the size of her feet. Whereupon, Thomas exhorts her to seek greater humility. Wow. And then goes back to his theology books and saying Mass. Wow. In other words, he was unflappable. He didn't care if you could float five feet off the ground. He wanted to know if you had the virtue of humility, mm. if you had all of the virtues, if you were charitable and faithful and hopeful and just and temperate and prudent and... And, um, and had fortitude. These are the things he cared about, not whether you could float off the ground. So that's not what the Church means by mysticism. It doesn't mean being able to float or see visions or dream dreams. Uh, mystical means that a person's interior life is genuinely transformed into the likeness and image of Jesus, that we have not just an intellectual knowledge of the faith and its doctrines, but an experiential knowledge of them. We are really conformed to the Blessed Trinity that we venerate. We really become like uh, the God-man that we worship. Uh, we offer our bodies along with the body and blood of Christ that we believe in in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is not a mere right to us. It's an occasion to give ourselves entirely to God. And so the, the, the sacraments and the mysteries and the doctrines of the Church— don't just work upon our minds, they transform our character. And, and the Church has a very developed theology of how this takes place over the course of a lifetime. It, 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 so the beginning stage of the mystical life is a commitment to purify yourself of all things that contaminate flesh or spirit out of reverence for God, this, an ascetical path of cutting yourself off from sin and occasions of sin. Uh, then uh, you begin the illuminative way, which is a transformation of your consciousness so that you come to see the world as Jesus sees it. Your, your thinking, your imagination, your memory, your thoughts, 
are transformed after the pattern of Christ's own mind. Mm -hmm. And this is the beginning of a supernatural state. This comes about by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. St. Paul says that we who have the Spirit have the mind of Christ. That's the illumination of the conscience and the intellect by the Holy Spirit. And then the final stage is this union with God, which is the complete conformity of the will to God, which St. John of the Cross tells us cannot take place without serious internal suffering. And uh, well, you've often heard the expression, the dark night of the soul. Many people think that refers to depression. It does not refer to depression garden. Any, any narcissistic neurotic can, can be blessed with depression, right? <laughs> We're talking about uh, a, a, a deeply spiritual experience where a person learns to reach out and trust in God in spite of his entire experience of the faith appearing to him as darkness, where uh, he, like the psalmist in Psalm 88, he feels devoid of spiritual help or comfort um, or, or even an ability to grasp or understand the doctrines of the faith, and yet he presses on anyway uh, in sheer faith into this experience of pain and suffering and comes out the other side with this transformed experience of grace. So um, it's, a, it's a long, hard path to union with God. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's far more difficult than just seeing visions and dreaming dreams. Any, any you know, Tom, or, Tom, Dick, or Harry can have visions and dream dreams, but it takes a saint uh, really to be a true mystic in this sense. And can you become a mystic like that in the way that you described, which is just the, the, the patient endurance in doing good, going to the sacraments, maintaining your prayer life? Yes, that life of prayer lived with great generosity and authenticity uh, is the normal way of sanctity. But the difference is most of us don't approach the doctrines and the practices and the sacraments and the teachings and the prayers mm -hmm. of the Church with the kind of generosity of spirit necessary to truly become a saint. Most of us are content with a kind of half-baked Catholicism where we go through the motions. Uh, and, uh, but if you really apply yourself with the desire to become a saint, no matter what, yes, the rites of the Church, that's why they're there, is to bring us to holiness. Susan, a couple of great questions from you. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. This one is from Brandon in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hi, Dr. Anders. I converted four years ago, and now I'm trying to help my Protestant best friend come to the church. He has professed belief in the real presence in the Eucharist, the primacy of Peter, that the church was instituted by Christ himself, and that all Protestant denominations are corruptions of the truth. Yet, due to fear of backlash from his Southern Baptist family, he chooses to remain a Protestant. Well, Lumen Gentium 2.14 says, quote, Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or remain in it, could not be saved. Is this in the Catechism and official Church teaching? Do I share this with him, or would that only drive him away? What is the best thing I can do to aid my friend in this situation, in addition to prayer? Thanks for all you do. God bless you. Respectfully, Brandon. Right. So the, the question, is that official Catholic teaching? The answer to that question is yes, that's official Catholic teaching. Okay. Um, now, as far as the best way to help your friend, that's a, that's a strategic question. That's a prudential question that requires knowledge of his history and personality, which you know more about of about than I do, mm. right? So I don't know what's going to move the lever for this person. But while you were talking, this thought occurred to me. Protestants venerate the memory of Martin Luther, 
In particular, they love the story of Luther at the Diet of Worms, where he stood up and said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. And Luther, of course, refused to recant his Protestantism, even in the face of uh, serious opposition from church and state. And of course, a price was put on his head, and he was in grave mortal danger. Uh, But he stuck to his guns, and he resisted Catholicism in order to stick to his Lutheranism. Now, Catholics, I'm a Catholic, I think Luther was dead wrong in his theology. Most Protestants value his what would seem to be his moral courage. And I would say, well, okay, my Protestant friend who thinks the Catholic Church is the real church, what about Luther's example? Right? Your your Baptist family probably venerates the memory of Luther standing up to what they took to be the tyrannical Catholic Church. Uh, would you show the same courage? And would they extend to you the same admiration if you said, you know, you guys venerate Luther for sticking to his conscience. Would you value my decision to do the same thing? Mm. Would you be Would you be as respectful of my conscience as you are laudatory of Luther's conscience? If I said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God, here I stand, I can do no other, that is why I am Catholic, would you respect me the way you respected Luther for making that same statement? to justify his leaving the church. Yeah. Uh, here's a little P.S. on that uh, from Brandon's letter. He was saying that his friend believes that all Protestant denominations are corruptions of the truth. Would you use the word corruptions? Uh, I think that that—no, I wouldn't. Um, and I've only got about two, ten seconds left in the show. That's, <laughs> there's not enough nuance in that word to yeah. really capture the relationship of Protestantism to Catholicism, which is a special study of mine. I've committed a lot of my life to that. I'm not a Protestant. I left the Protestant Church because I thought it was wrong, uh, but, uh, but I do recognize that there are definite elements of truth and sanctification within that tradition, and in people and things that I value, even though I ultimately made the decision to leave Protestantism and become mm-hmm. Catholic. Well, and and as you pointed out earlier in the show, uh, many Protestants have at least, what, two of the seven sacraments? I got two of the seven sacraments, 66 of the 73 books, and some of them acknowledge quite a lot of the tradition. Better believe it. Appreciate that, Brandon. Thanks so much uh, for your email. We hope that is helpful for you and for your friend as well. Got to a whole bunch of questions today, uh, whether it was on the phone, on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, emails. Got a lot covered today. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN, on the radio side, that is. Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can check out the podcast anytime. Uh, our producer here will have our uh, that posted for you at uh, EWTNradio.net, EWTNradio.net so you can check it out at any time that you wish. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Have a great day. God bless.